Hi everybody, welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. Tonight is going to be an odd mix of things, and I want to introduce you to a term that was actually rather new to me as well. But for those of you out there who are steeped in um, Eastern spiritual traditions, Taoism, Buddhism especially, um, you probably have heard of meontology. Not ontology, but ontology with an M-E in front of it, which is the transliteration of the Greek meaning non. And that is going to be relevant to us as students of the unconscious, das Unbewusste, the German unconscious, but also of this Unbegriff, this non-concept that is in fact for Lacan, the concept of lack that we've been working with in this seminar. Here's one more Un to throw into the mix, transliterated from the Greek as meon, non-being. It's a fancy new word that I hope to take apart tonight um, and see if we can make heads and tails of it. So let's start with some lookings at this book. Seminar 11 is terrific. It's a foundational text. Um, I really like seminars one and two as introductory texts. Seminar 17 is kind of nosebleed introduction, but this 11 is right down the line. It's sophisticated, but also accessible. I want to call your attention to some passages tonight for sure to help us. First and foremost, though, what's great about our readings for tonight, chapters 9 through 12, is that one of the canonical questions, maybe even the central question of Lacanian psychoanalysis recurs. What is the relation of the subject to the signifier? This is the central question that Lacan is asking. It's what he's doing with linguistics after Freud, what he thought Freud himself would have done if he had had a colleague in linguistics down the hall from him. Let me point a couple of passages out to you where this really starts popping. So page 126 is pretty good for this. And if you don't have your book, don't worry. I'm going to read it so we can all have access to it, at least by way of the ears. You heard me talk earlier about some upcoming discourses in Italy. Here, we're going to start with Lacan's Rome discourse, page 126, last full paragraph. In my Rome report, I proceeded to a new alliance with the meaning of the Freudian discovery. And when you ask Lacan, what was the Freudian discovery? What, did, what egg did, did Freud crack? It's the, it's the unconscious. Freud thought it was dreams, right? He thought that there was gonna be a plaque on the front of his house after he died that said, it was here that Siggy Freud discovered the meaning of dreams. No, for Lacan, it's not quite that, it's the unconscious. The unconscious is the sum of the effects of speech on a subject at the level at which the subject constitutes himself out of the effects of the signifier. 
So here you have this holy Lacanian trinity on display, the unconscious, the subject of and to the unconscious, and you have the signifier. The signifier is the operator here for Lacan. Flip forward to page 130 for another treatment of this. The analyst's interpretation, about eight or nine lines down, merely reflects the fact that the unconscious, if it is what I say it is, namely the play of the signifier, has already in its formations, dreams, slips of the tongue or pen, witticisms or symptoms, preceded by interpretation. Here again, we see this signifier, not signifiers, not signification. There's a the in front of this, the signifier. We're right in the heart of our readings for tonight. 138, and listen to this one carefully. Lacan builds up to this. Lacan very much operates like an eight-year-old. In some ways, he talks about things. An important topic will come up, and then he heads out in a different direction. But if it's an important topic, he'll circle back around to it the way a seven or an eight-year-old would. They get distracted, they meander, but then they always come back, which is always why it's great to wait when talking with little kids. Page 138, just under the number two here. You will see why the relation of the subject to the signifier is the reference point that I wished to place at the forefront of a general rectification of analytic theory. That's what this is. Seminar 11 is a general rectification of analytic theory as Lacan sees it. And he says at the very front of that rectification is a return to the relation of the subject to the signifier for it is as primary and constitutive in the establishment of analytic experience as it is primary and constitutive in the radical function of the unconscious. Here in this passage on page 138, we get an even sharper image of this holy trinity of subject, signifier, and unconscious. The relation of the subject to the signifier is primary and constitutive of analytic experience itself. But it is also an primary and constitutive in the radical function of the unconscious. The subject and its relation to the signifier is the basis for psychoanalysis as a therapeutic technique, Lacan says. But it is also fundamental to human being as keepers of the unconscious. These are powerful moves. I would just add one more thing here. The subject, the signifier, and the unconscious, the missing foundational element, it doesn't arrive until page 154, is desire. You heard Barbara bring it up earlier. We're talking about desire here as well. Middle of the page on page 154, the paragraph begins clearly. The function of desire is a last residuum of the effect of the signifier in the subject. And then look at this. Desidero is the Freudian cogito. <coughs> desire 
is the last residuum of this process whereby the subject is subjected to the defiles of the signifier, to language, to the symbolic, resulting in an unconscious. And with that unconscious, an opening for desire. And if you've seen the first two lectures in the series, you know that opening is an important word here. Desire always needs an opening, a gap, a furrow. The signal for this opening in Lacan's terms is objet a. That little a is the zero point of desire. And I use the word zero very carefully as he does in seminar 10, just before seminar 11. Zero stands for and holds the place for nothing. Mayontology, the study of non-being. <clears throat> Don't forget where we're headed tonight. <clears throat> so now we have a properly Lacanian quadrilateral arrangement. The subject, the signifier, the unconscious, and desire. You could bake some mean cookies with those four terms. In fact, those might have been the four fundamental concepts of psychoanalysis. So tonight, what we're also going to get into are these terms transference, which according to Lacan is more important than these others. We'll also have the unconscious in front of us. Some of you might say repression, something we've been discussing recently, should be up there as well. We'll touch upon it too. All of this will stitch back in together. So here's the question. What is this signifier? This signifier in the singular that has the article the in front of it. What is the signifier? We get a clue on page 141. <clears throat> and it is quite a clue indeed. If you have the book, this is the time I'd want you to crack it open and take a look. Page 141. You know what? That reminds me. Hey, raise a hand if you don't have the book in front of you. Okay, that's not enough for me to make this executive move of opening up a digital copy of the book and throwing it up on the screen so we can all work through it together. And I'm not going to, ah, maybe next time. It's too much work. It's computers. I don't know computers. Okay, I'll read and, and, and um, <clears throat> we know that our ears are better at hearing uh, what our eyes don't want to see. So let's start here on page 141. In my own vocabulary, right in the middle of the page here, on the other hand, do you all see this? I symbolize the subject by the barred S insofar as it is constituted as secondary in relation to the signifier. So the signifier comes first, and the subject is an effect structure of the signifier. In order to illustrate this, I will remind you that the thing may be presented in the simplest possible way by the single stroke. The single stroke. The first signifier, and let me just be clear, I don't believe in playing games with this stuff. What Lacan is after here is the primordial signifier the first signifier. The first signifier is the notch 
by which it is indicated, for example, that the subject has killed one animal, by means of which he will not become confused in his memory when he has killed 10 others. He will not have to remember which is which. And it is by means of this single stroke that he will count them. The subject himself is marked off by the single stroke. And first he marks himself as a tattoo, the first of the signifiers. When this signifier, this one is established, the reckoning is one, one. And that's really where things get a little tricky here. It is at the level, not of the one, but of the one, one, at the level of the reckoning that the subject has to situate himself as such. In this respect, the two ones are already distinguished. Thus is marked the first split that makes the subject as such distinguish himself from the sign in relation to which at first he has been able to constitute himself as subject. There is one one, and it's here at this level with regard and in relation to this incisive one that one must situate oneself. That's what we're doing here with the one one. <clears throat> Think of the first primary one as the stroke of the number, the way a cut or a notch or an incision occurs. Think of the other as not the number one, but the pronoun one. One must situate oneself in relation to, at the level of this primordial one. <clears throat> The word for this, in Lacanian terms, this original one is the unary trait. Notice the UN on the front again, unconscious, unbevushta, unbegriff, un becoming may in ontology, may ontology, and now we have the unary trait. Don't get confused by the German. And don't get confused by the English, where UN, the prefix UN means not, a negation of sorts. Lacan is messing with this stuff because what does UN mean in French? One. It is the pronoun one and it is the number one. When you see a U and an N being messed with in this text, as it is very explicitly messed with in this text, it is the French un meaning one that Lacan has in mind. We've seen this before. Flash back to page 26. To my mind, 26 has still, it still remains the most illuminating page here. You'll recall on page 25, Lacan is introducing the unconscious. What he's saying here is that the unconscious always shows up as a discontinuity, a discontinuity in the otherwise fluid, ordinary, empty speech of the analyzant, or really of anybody. <clears throat> he's talking about the Freudian slip, the bungled action, the stammer, 
the stutter, the forgetting, all the ways in the case of the dream, for example, that the unconscious finds symptomatic expression. <clears throat> all of these, Lacan says, are surprises. These are discontinuous moments in the life of a subject where they apologize. Oh, sorry, I, I meant to say Pittsburgh, not Titsburgh. I'm so embarrassed. Oh gosh, I can't even believe that. What a Freudian slip. Ooh, you know, people go crazy about this shit. Apologizing, making up for this. <clears throat> this discontinuity though, is that notch. That is the notch in the stone, in the bone that signals the first kill. Lacan is messing with this stuff. Notice, as we turn to page 26, right at the top of the page, is the one anterior to discontinuity? Now, before we get into this, <clears throat> let's be really clear what he's talking about here. It's a really common question that Lacanians, new and old, want to talk about. What's there before the discontinuity, whether traumatic or otherwise, that forms the unconscious? Is there some sort of a state of oneness, a totalized bioanimalistic uteromorphic experience, not unlike the book of Genesis, or I should say the Garden of Eden? The book of Genesis is really quite terrifying. But the Garden of Eden sounds pretty great, right? I like a hot bath just as much as the next person. I have a friend who loves being buried in cedar chips. And the chemicals, he says, is amazing. The heat alone. He got a chemical burn, I think, from a cedar, a pile of cedar chips once. He was buried up to his neck, too, so it was a substantial burn. I thought it was a tan initially. And then I hugged him, and it was all over. Is the one anterior to discontinuity? Is there some sort of an Edenic, uteromorphic, peaceful place before the discontinuity of the signifier and with it, the unconscious starts popping? I do not think so. Underline it. I do not think so. And everything that I have taught in recent years has tended to exclude this need for a closed one. Here's why. It's a mirage to which is attached the reference to the enveloping psyche, a sort of double of the organism in which this false unity is thought to reside. So Lacan's point here is that if you allow this uteromorphic animalistic ideology in, it's really easy to move from that to an understanding of the subject that is supposed to have this holistic enveloping psyche without discontinuity. And that the goal here would be to have at the end of analysis, somebody who is not able to handle their shit, but somebody who doesn't have any shit at all, who is coherent, not able to deal with moments when they're incoherent, but is instead cured. And the practicing clinicians in the room, I bet you have numerous stories of somebody showing up and saying, fix me. You're the doctor, fix me, make me better, make it so it doesn't hurt anymore. Lacan believes that that fantasy is just that, a fantasy. You will grant me that the one, again, italicized, 
that is introduced by the experience of the unconscious is the one of the split, of the stroke, of rupture. There it is again. The split, the stroke, the rupture, the furrow. Think about this just the way you would think of a notch, the way that a notch just puts a line on the page, in the wood, in the stone. It actually looks like the number one. Get out your cutting board, take a look at it. That time you cut too hard through the apple and it scarred the board. It looks like the number one. That's what we're up to here at a very basic typological level. And by that, I'm talking about typesetting. The number one literally is what we're talking about here as it appears as a single stroke. It'll become important as we see. Because notice where Lacan goes on page 26. At this point, there springs up a misunderstood form of the un, the un in the unbewusste, which is German for unconscious. Let us just say that the limit of the unbewusste is the unbegriff, German for non-concept, literally. But Lacan is want to be careful here. Not the non-concept, but the concept of lack. What we're after here is a very peculiar and extremely foundational understanding of what Lacan is up to. And in fact, here's what I would suggest. If you can understand what Lacan is doing with the number one in its numerical and pronominal forms, what he's doing with one, that single number, you can make sense of the vast majority of what Lacan is up to theoretically and technically. I mean that as the level of the concept, but also at the level of clinical experience. It all turns on understanding what Lacan is doing here with the un, in French here meaning one. I wanna be very clear and categorical about this as I have before. Some of you subscribe to our Substack newsletter, and you've seen and you know that as I'm reading this, I'll post things and send emails out with some digest on what we're doing in this text. So you can refer back and you can go to lectures on Lacan at Substack, and you can see some of this being written out. I think sometimes it's nice to have it in front of your eyes before you have it inside of your ears. So this one that we're talking about here, on pages 141 and then back on page 26. We've seen it before. The unconscious, unbewusste, the unbegriff, it's the number one. This one is the concept of no. It is the foundational concept in Lacanian psychoanalysis. The non, which as you know, if you speak French, sounds a lot like nom, name. When Lacan's talking about the name of the father, he has two moments in mind. The first is the French N-O-N, the no of the father, which prohibits, or in Lacanian terms, castrates. Then there is the second moment, the name of the father, which metaphorically replaces the desire of the maternal caregiver. We're not there yet. 
But you can see this divided up pretty cleanly. Bruce Fink is really great with this. Alienation describes the no of the father. Separation describes the name of the father. The first procedure is prohibitive, really functioning at the level of no, thou shalt not. And the effects of that. The second name of the father is a metaphorical one where something is something takes the place of a signifier of sorts takes the place of the desire of a maternal figure which doesn't have to be a woman and oftentimes isn't lacan's not thinking anatomically here he's thinking about function and subject position mommy is a function just like daddy is too so you'll always hear me say the paternal function or the maternal function these are functions that can be performed by anybody. And in fact, in the case of the paternal function, sometimes it's performed by nobody at all. God, Jesus, Colonel Sanders, the Queen of England. These are some of the best daddies you could ask for. This no doesn't look too different from the no smoking sign that has a through it. It's an incisional no. This concept of no has the linear form and incisional function of a split, a stroke, or a furrow. It introduces a cut into the life of the child. Now, prohibition at this level, it can start at the level of weaning. No more boob. That's a prohibitive function. It takes a certain part of the infant's experience, oftentimes identified with holy, the breast, and crosses it out, strikes it out, puts a line through it. Potty training is also oftentimes a very prohibitive experience. Thou shalt not shit in the potted plant. There's a toilet for that. No, you have to hold it. We'll be home in a second. Just hold it. There's a time and a place now. That is experienced as a prohibition. Language, the introduction of language, the introduction of a child into language is also a prohibitive experience, according to Lacan. Thou shalt not babble and cry anymore. Use your words. The word alienation really works well here because in truth, what we know is it's not the tongue of the child that it's being asked, no, demanded to speak. It's the mother tongue. It's the mother's tongue. It's the tongue of the grown-up. It's the language that was there before you were born. It's alienating because you're asked to speak a language that is not your own. But the primary caregiver says, use your words. And if the child had the words to speak, you know what they might say. Motherfucker, these are your words. Why do I got to use your words like that? They lose it. But that's not what happens. <clears throat> because there's candy on the line. You see, a child, here I'm looking at Xinhua, is in the grocery store and says, Mommy, can I please have this? I want this. I want this thing. This cereal, that candy, all positioned just at the child's eyesight. <clears throat> and you might be inclined to give in, but you would tell the crying child, I can't understand you when you're crying like that. Let's calm down, take a deep breath, and tell me what it is you want. There's candy at stake. 
if the child will just accept their castration, if they will accept the prohibition. And we've talked a lot about this. I won't go too much into it. You can review the previous lectures if you want. <clears throat> what is this basic prohibition? At a very fundamental level, it is a prohibition against continuing to live your life without prohibition. That is the foundational no. <clears throat> and out of that basic no, you will get the real. You will get jouissance. You will get the law, criminality, punishment, and discipline. Out of that basic no, you can derive all of these other social formations. They're all anchored in the basic structure of prohibition that is endemic to child development, according to Lacan. And I should add here, neurotic, normal child development. Not normal in the sense that this is how it should be, but just that more often than not, we language using and misusing creatures tend to go through these stages. And even Lacan's not even gonna to wanna to use the word stage. He thinks that's bullshit. But I think for our purposes, when we're trying to just clarify what's going on here, it's still useful. <clears throat> You've also heard me and seen in our diagrams the tracing out of this prohibitive structure at the level of child development, at the level of desire. Let me go ahead and throw something up here for you, so to speak, and see if it'll work. You'll recall this imaginary triangle that we've worked on. It's gonna look something like this. I'm gonna share my screen so we can all take a look at it. You have this imaginary triangle between the maternal figure, the child, and some other mysterious thing, which we can talk about later. Here's your child. Here's your maternal FX function, maternal function. First and foremost, you'll recall, the child has a desire for the maternal figure. That desire is an embodied desire. All desire is of one body for another, according to Lacan. What the child realizes though, is that the maternal figure also has other things that they like, symbolized here by the lowercase phi in Greek. You'll note it does look like testicles and a penis. The foremost and important part of this diagram for us is the penis part, not because the anatomy matters, but because the shape of it matters. What the child soon realizes, and this is review, is that in order to get their desire for the maternal figure, for their affection, for their care, for their love met, they have to compete with this other object of desire. It is an imaginary object because it is something that the child imagines is a competitor for the maternal figure's affection. And what the child realizes is, I can't beat this thing, so I'm gonna join it. I'm gonna be like that in order to get my desire for mom met. Now this green triangle is an imaginary triangle, but it is also, I would add, proto-symbolic. 
because here the child is working at one remove from the desire of and for the mother by approximating some object that it is not, some object that symbolizes mother's desire. Now, this imaginary triangle soon meets with, and if you're a Lacanian, you know this, we always want to try and count at least to four, another figure. Somebody else cuts in. Here is the paternal function. The paternal function is to cut in to this imaginary triangle. And this is a good thing to break this shit up and to turn it from an imaginary triangle into a symbolic square. Symbolic meaning linguistic. Here's why it's important. If the paternal figure or function is not performed, the child finds themselves believing that their quest in life is to become the object of someone else's desire. And if the paternal function is only partial, if it's incomplete, this is a recipe for perversion, where in order to get it finished, the pervert has to trump desire with jouissance and say, I'm not just the object of your desire. I'm the thing that gets you off. <clears throat> we don't want to go down that path. What we want to talk about is a successful paternal function, which has the structure of prohibition. It's a no. And it says no to the maternal figure. You don't have this object of desire. And it's a no to the child. And you can't be it for her. The mother doesn't have the imaginary phallus. And the child cannot be it for her. This cut or this opening, a spatializing of that imaginary relationship effectively negates the imaginary object. Now this is important because that negation, that moment of castration symbolized here by a negation of the imaginary phallus, it produces an opening, some breathing room that the child can, I dare say, enjoy but let's be clear, in which the child can develop some desire of their own. Not a desire that is pegged on mommy, but a desire of their own. Anxiety, as we learned in our last series, reading Seminar 10, is when this space between the child and the maternal figure is missing. When the lack or the gap in which desire would grow is itself lacking. This is when you have a, a primary caregiver who smothers a child, never letting up on the kid, never giving the kid a chance to do things on their own, to discover things on their own, fill in the blank with helicopter parent, and you'll see where we're at. The paternal function, when it's done well, it introduces a cut via prohibition that leaves an opening a lack. Here is Objea in the Lacanian system. 
This we have talked about as the origin of the split subject. In fact, I would even say that you could draw the split subject with a very wide S and on one side and on the other here. This is our split subject. And you might even flesh it out further in keeping with the diagram work we were doing last time. Here is your encounter with the real, traumatic, the car crash. Here at the zero point of desire, you have the basic foundation for the dream. On one side of the split subject, you have desire. On the other, you have trauma. It's a powerful way to understand the split subject that we haven't worked on yet, but I expect there'll be more to come. My point here right now is just fleshing out this one, and I do mean it fleshing it out. The one in question here is, if it's done well, a negative one. It's a one that that produces a gap or a cut or an opening. That's why I like the term incision here. Just as if you were to cut your arm open, a slice in your arm would leave an opening. The, the act of slicing your arm is the act of prohibition. It introduces a cut into the life of the child. What's left, the wound, the opening, is the object cause of desire. It's the space or the furrow into which desire would take root. Lacan likes the image of a furrow or a notch for this reason, because it produces at the level of visuality the linear form of the number one. But as you look into the three-dimensional nature of a furrow or a ditch, as we heard him reinterpreting the Fort Da game last time, the image of a ditch or a furrow or a notch has a three-dimensionality to it. It's not just a line on a flat surface, one on top of the other. The ditch is actually three-dimensional. Visually, looking down at this thing, it just looks like a line. But as you look at this thing from a lateral position, you can see that it's actually a three-dimensional. It is a groove. This is the crack in the sidewalk where the grass grows. It's the crack where soil gathers and something can grow. In this case, it's desire. And desire for Lacan is a defense against anxiety. Desire in this case is actually very, very good. Why? Because anxiety is far, far worse. This incision turned opening is the primordial cause of the subject, of the unconscious and of desire. This is the signifier that Lacan is talking about in the passages that we began with. Is psychoanalysis a science? We've asked multiple times in here. 
The answer is yes, it is a science, but it is not concerned with objects. It is concerned with openings. It is not concerned with things, it is concerned with causes. The term here, if modern science loves its objectivity, for Lacan, the term is objectality, which is not about the stuff that scientists tend to obsess over. It is about the cause of that stuff. And the simplest example, again, sometimes it's better to say it again and say it better, is that of a pen. I hold up this pen against the whiteness of the wall behind it. In order for this pen to emerge as an object for us to study scientifically, there have to be these other two elements, namely the wall that it is not, out of which it appears, against which it appears, foreground relative to the background. But there's also this third element, the minimum irreducible distance between this pen and the wall that allows the two to appear distinct. That third element is another point of access to OJA. It is the minimum irreducible distance between any two entities that allows them to remain distinct. For the philosophers in the room, that's a really great definition to work with. For the clinicians, I can feel your inner brows furrowing. Like how the hell is that gonna help me work with a patient? Dr. Sam with your pen and your wall. I hear you, I feel you, even though I'm not that kind of doctor. So let's see if we can cleave a little bit closer to clinical experience here. This study of openings and objectalities is also readily apparent in the diagram of repression that we've been working with. Now, you've seen it before. In our sessions, if you follow us on Instagram, or again, if you see us on Substack, you know that you've seen this thing before, but I'm gonna draw it again because I also believe draw it again, draw it better. Recall how we've been working with repression here. What these openings here are, they are temporal pulsations. This is a line of time and experience. Things are just unfolding in ways. I'm gonna actually write T, P, right here. I'm gonna let you do with that what you want. You put your T, P right here in the hole. This is a temporal pulsation. This narrative that goes with this is something along these lines. You're living your life, doing the best you can. Everything's going great. Boom, a temporal pulsation, a trauma. Some encounter with the real. We've used in the past the example of a car crash, a primal scene of sorts. Lacan says, building on Freud, that what is repressed in that moment, thereby constituting the unconscious, is not the whole event, 
but some signifier of it, some specific element of the event that you then repress. It could be the smell of leather, the feel of your blood matted shirt to your chest. But when repression occurs, it's a signifier of some kind of the trauma that is repressed. That process gives us the unconscious. The unconscious becomes the space, the other space where these signifiers all mix together. And then there you are, again, recall the example, at goodwill, thumbing through the clothes, and you touch your hand on a jacket, and that leather feeling comes back, and you recoil in horror from the jacket, surprised at your own disgust. This is the return of the repressed. Not as a trauma, but as a symptom of the underlying issue. And to keep this process going, you know that in the Lacanian system, the goal is to make this retroactive assignment of meaning where you connect the dots. You ask yourself, why the hell was there this other explosive temporal pulsation at goodwill? What, what is up with me in relation to leather? And then retroactively, because right, the arrow of time moves to the right, the arrow of meaning is retrospective, retroactive, if you will. It connects that moment to the earlier trauma. And that would be the work of analysis at a very basic level, is to come to terms via who you are and what you're experiencing today at the level of the symptom with who you've been who you were when the seeds of that symptom were first planted. Now, what I wanna focus on here tonight that is new are these temporal pulsations, these openings, because Lacan gives us some more to work with here than we've seen so far. Check out page 143 and 144. These are some terrific pages from this reading set. 143 and 144 are awesome. And on 144, you see this image of what Lacan calls a hoop net. I'm not just dwelling on this, as you know, because it's the basic image of our series. But on 144, you see this hoop net. The way to understand what he's doing with this thing is to turn that hoop net on its side. There's your little A opening. And then to add something else on top, to make this actually look like a hoop net where the fish swim in, they enter through a very narrow orifice, and then they get caught down here. And you got all kinds of fish down here. This is a terrific image 
for what these temporal pulsations are. Notice how Lacan puts this at the bottom of page 144. We must consider the subject in terms of the hoop net, especially in relation to its orifice, which constitutes its essential structure as being inside. What matters is not what goes in there, as the gospel has it, but what comes out. The first temporal pulsation that we see here at the level of the trauma is the going in. The second temporal pulsation at the level of the symptom is the coming out. And as we're going to see, transference, according to Lacan, is what happens when TP2 clogs the toilet, when TP2 refuses to let anything pass, when something can't come out. You have the bad repetition known as transference. Let me be categorical here. Transference, according to Lacan, is what happens when these openings, these orifices, are closed or obstructed. Transference is an obstacle to the retroactive work of meaning making that in psychoanalysis is just known as remembering. Transference is a block or an obstacle to remembering. And the clinicians in the room who deal with transference, this may be pretty resonant for you. Transference is an obstacle to remembering. It's when these temporal pulsations, these openings are clogged, particularly the second opening, because it's at that level at TP2, when you're at the store and you touch the leather jacket and you recoil in horror, that's an opportunity for you to understand what the hell is wrong with you, what the hell ails you, what keeps you up late at night. Transference, according to Lacan, is when that opening is closed. Transference is useful, though, because it is still a signal of that opening. It shows the analyst where the crack is. It shows the analyst where, if the patient could open up, they would find something. But the patient has clogged his or her own pipes. You can see this being worked out as 144 goes to 145. Check it out. We can conceive of the closing of the unconscious through the effect of something that plays the role of an obturator. Do you know what an obturator is? It's some nasty business, man. It's like a suture. Dentists use it. Surgeons use it. It's a suture of sorts that closes an opening, squeezing it back tight. The cut, the opening, and then you have the obturator, which is the thing that tries to pull it closed again. Something here is playing the role of an obturator. The objet a, here we're thinking objet a as object, which is another way that we're gonna have to be working as we get to the drive. We don't have to know it all now. But as we get there, we'll talk about also the way this isn't truly an object. Sucked, breathed into the orifice of the net. You can draw an image like those great balls in which the number to be drawn in the lottery are enclosed. 
You know what he's talking about here? The, the person's churning around this big barrel of balls and all the ping pong balls are rattling around in there. And you're hoping your number comes out. This is old school lottery stuff. In the Greek times, they used acorns, but a very similar um, selection by lot would occur in many cases, even at a governmental level back then. What is concocted in this great roulette out of the first statements of free association emerges from it in the interval in which the object is not blocking the orifice. Free association works when there's not an object blocking your orifice. Scroll down a little bit beneath this totally whack example of the mirror and look at the paragraph that begins, this schema is quite inadequate on page 145. This schema is quite inadequate. I always like it when McCann admits that it's quite inadequate, but it is a bulldozer schema, which renders congruent the notion that the transference, here it is, my friends, is both an obstacle to remembering and a making present of the closure of the unconscious, which is the act of missing the right meeting just at the right moment. Transference is what happens when the opening of your hoop net, where we might otherwise see what kind of fish you have swimming around in your unconscious, X, Y, and Z. Transference is what happens when that opening is blocked. But it is productive because it shows us that that's where the opening is. That's the spot where we want to direct our attention. So there's the more clinical, less philosophical turn on objectality from the schema of repression. What I would suggest to you is that if you're wondering how the subject fits into this diagrammatic work, the subject is what's constituted along the way. The subject is all over this thing. Somewhere between the trauma that birthed the unconscious and the symptom that in the best case scenario gave us a window and an opportunity for coming to terms with that original primordial cut. What about the unconscious? in all of this. You see it down here. It's still in the mix. These temporal pulsations, one constitutes the unconscious, the other allows it to appear at the level of a return repression. I can't emphasize this enough. In the second opening, TP2, at the level of the symptom, the unconscious appears as a slip, as a stutter, as forgetting, as recoil, parapraxies of every sort, and of course, in the dream. But in this first TP1 here, this temporal pulsation, this rupture in the fabric of your existence that happened at the car accident, this is what Lacan in Seminar 11 refers to as the tuke from Aristotle the real as encounter, it is here that the unconscious is formed. It is here at the level of a cut into your experience 
that the unconscious is caused. This is the cause of the unconscious. And I want to emphasize something here about that at the risk of being a little too playful. Check out page 128. 128 gives us a foray of causes. I'm about a quarter of the page down. This indicates just after he says Freud's discovery or probably 10 or 11 lines down. This indicates that the cause of the unconscious, and this is one of the four fundamental concepts of psychoanalysis according to Lacan, the unconscious, right out of the gates, the unconscious is the first term he's gonna address. Now we are talking about its cause, how it happened. This indicates that the cause of the unconscious and you see that the word cause is to be taken here in its ambiguity, a cause to be sustained, but also a function of the cause at the level of the unconscious. This cause must be conceived as fundamentally a lost cause, and it is the only chance one has of winning it. It's a terrific flourish that we get from Lacan here. Mm -hmm. The cause of psychoanalysis is just that. It is a cause. It is a cause for joy. It is a cause for healing. It is a cause for thought, but it is a cause to be fought and ideally won. But Lacan's point is also double. The cause in question here is always a lost cause as well. Not because you can't make the cause of analysis work, but because the cause of the unconscious is always repressed. It's always pushed under, subsumed. It's a lost cause. Your encounter that happened at the level of the car accident was a missed encounter because it was so overwhelming for you that you shut down. You couldn't be there for it because you were all too present. It was all too present. You see, this is the Lacanian notion of trauma. I stick with bloody examples because, you know, it works. But trauma for Lacan is just any experience that you were unprepared for. If I drive an ambulance day in and day out, I'm not tripping about some blood. I see blood every day. I don't bat an eye at it. Thank God, too, because that's what saves people. If, however, I'm a simple-minded professor with barely a callus on his hand and a Band-Aid in every pocket, the first sight of a car accident is going to shut me down. One man's job is another person's trauma. And one person's trauma is another woman's job. It works that way with trauma. It's a relative experience having to do with what you are prepared for. So sex as an adult is not a traumatic experience, but to subject a child to sex is intensely traumatic because they are totally, utterly, radically unprepared for anything like that. That's why it's abuse. That's why it's horrible. That's why you don't do bad shit to kids because Everything verges on trauma when kids are involved. 
because they're new to this world. They're not used to anything. And of course, isn't this the great insight that British object relations had? They realized at the origin of attachment that kids are going to glom onto whatever type of affection you bring to them. If you beat a kid, they will learn to feel loved only when being beaten. Humans are unique, not so much for our hands and our bipedalism, which in turn allowed the dental structure to shrink and these big old noggins to grow. Humans are unique because we are extremely adaptable. The scariest thing about humans is that we can get used to fucking anything. It's when you're not used to something and it occurs that trauma can occur. So that's part of what happens here. The cause of the unconscious is a traumatic experience in varying degrees that is a lost cause, a missed encounter, because it was too overwhelming for you to process. You couldn't metabolize it. You shut down. We shut down. Each of us has gone through this. This is the lost cause. Psychoanalysis has never been a lost cause. It's a winning effort. But the cause of the object of inquiry in psychoanalysis known as the unconscious is lost. And you'll recall where this seminar start, where seminar 11 begins. Lacan, like Picasso, does not seek, he says. He finds. I do not seek, I find. Lost causes are made to be found. Psychoanalysis does not seek the cause of the unconscious. By God, it finds them. It is not a search. Psychoanalysis is not the hermeneutic search for the meaning of the subject's life. It is more like an archaeological technique, an excavational method whereby that cause is unearthed, discovered, disclosed, if you play with the Heideggerian terms here, unconcealed, or as Lacan puts it in this seminar, found. The game of psychoanalytic theory and technique, my friends, is a game of lost and found. Can I ask a quick question? Please go ahead. Regarding my research about adventure tourism. So I'm wondering, because, um, oops, one of the tendencies that draws people to adventure, can I argue from this theory of the, of the unconscious that it is the, the risk of putting yourselves at the, in face of death, for example, you know, adventure tourism, like, uh, or extreme outdoor sports, climbing rocks and jumping off an airplane, or doing all sorts of activities that endangers yourself. Yeah. And can we say that people who became obsessed with such activities are um, simply experiencing symptoms of their profound fear of non-existence? 
or death. And that's why they want to go as close as possible to the edge and, and meanwhile, familiarize themselves and turn that new extreme experience into the new commonality, the, the new boredom, and then constantly have to push limits. Do you think the theory of the unconscious can apply in this situation? Sure, it could. I mean, I think the logic you're describing is a really common one. And I would bet that everybody on this call right now has gone through some version of this, whether it's like an addiction of sorts or whether it's like an adrenaline junkieism of sorts, like you might be describing. The question of the unconscious in here is a trickier one. I think that if you read Lacan carefully, what you will find is a theory of the subject that is amazingly hopeful and generous. It's not just that the cause of my unconscious is lost and that the job of analytic experience is to help me find it. Lacan's belief deep down is that I, as the analyzand, actually want it to be found. I go out of my way to hide it, but I also more so go out of my way to have it be found. There is something in me other than me that makes itself want to be heard. You see, the ego for Lacan is resistant to anything that would reveal that they have a crack or a fissure or a temporal pulsation in their past. The ego wants to be fixed forever, frozen like a statue of a god. This is why you see people obsessing about their selfies. This is why plastic surgery oftentimes happens at certain stages in life. It's when you can no longer hold on to the image of yourself as you fantasize it relative to your past. The picture of you from high school that you no longer live up to, you just simply can't pull it off anymore. It's that's when you start seeing the dramatic efforts to freeze and cling fast to some aspect of your past, whether it's the level of plastic surgery or dyeing one's hair or wearing contacts instead of glasses. So it looks like you didn't have to have glass. You know, there are all these ways and things that people go through. Call it a midlife crisis. Call it what you will. Everybody goes through this at some level, whether you're eight or 80. I think these are phenomena that, that strike us all. I think the important part here, though, is that the ego is not the only driver in the car. Your ego is not the only passenger who can get behind the wheel. And what else happens when you close your eyes? When the ego goes to sleep, the unconscious gets behind the wheel and wants to show you some real shit. And I mean that, some real shit. Both of those terms, real shit, I mean both of those literally. In this case, I think it's important to know that an adrenaline junkie like you're describing might be somebody who doesn't just want to flirt with death in order to overcome it, in order to conquer it, in order to become numb to that adrenaline in order to have the next rush. It's not a flirtation with death. It's an invitation to be fucked by it. It's a desire to die. But then, of course, mediated through capital, make sure you do this with all the actuarial pieces right. in place so that I don't, in fact, get hurt. Like, I'm, I'm willing to do, you know, um, 
psychedelics left and right, but I definitely want to make sure that I'm there with my therapist so they can guide me through this stuff and I don't wind up at the grocery store again. You see what I'm saying? Like we have these yeah. ways, these prophylactics that we use when we are tempted and that is it. There is an impulse in us towards death. It is a special impulse. Don't forget what Lacan says in the readings for tonight about the species. A species only lives at the level of each individual that is there. But it is only by dying that the species can continue. Each individual must die in order for the species to live on. And Lacan's point here is that sex and death are wrapped up together. It's not so much sexual reproduction that produces the species as it is death. What else ails us on this planet more than population? The problem with Earth is the fucking humans everywhere. We are the problem with Earth. The environmental movement has always been off. It's never been about saving the planet. All of that belies a basic egotistical impulse that everybody knows in their bones at this point. It's about saving us. In 4 billion years, the earth is going to be fine. We're the ones who are fucked. So I think as long as you allow this dialectic between the ego and the unconscious to play out, Xinhua, you can make some pretty interesting claims, even at the limit of saying that this isn't just a flirtation with death, but an actual effort to be fucked by it. And, and I think that is the death drive. That is the death drive. The death drive is a very peculiar thing. It's repetitive, the same way that an adrenaline junkie would repetitively move through different levels of extreme experience. The death drive is the basic structure of all drives, though. And I would even say that death is the final horizon for pleasure. What else is the pleasure principle but an effort to return to this homeostatic, peaceful place? When you are in pure, perfect harmony with your environment, hear that one again? The one that Lacan says is complete bullshit. The fantasy that we're all trying to get back to, it's not some Edenic experience of pure life. The truth of the fantasy of oneness is a death wish. I don't actually want to live like I did back when I was in my mom's tummy or before the world crushed my spirit. <laughs> That's not it at all. The truth, the truth is I just want to be dead. I want to sleep like the dead as a rehearsal for becoming one myself. What could be more peaceful than being dead and in the ground? When the earth freezes, so do you. When it thaws in the spring, so do you. If ever there was an opportunity to become one with the earth, it's when you completely and utterly disappear into it. Mm -hmm. That's different. That's not soaking in a pot of cedar chips. That's not getting in the hot tub. That's not returning to a uteromorphic experience. Unless you accept what Lacan also says about infantile experience. <laughs> it's not pleasant. 
It's fucking horrifying. The life of the squirrel is a life of pure terror from dawn until dusk. You think they're moving around, flitting their tails because they're just having a great time out there? They are shitting their fur every single second of every single day. The squirrels down there are like, oh, I'm going to bury this nut. I got to come back to this thing later. I got to come back to this. Remember what this nut is. And then all of a sudden it's up on its feet like, fuck, I almost died. And then it's back. Okay, okay, okay. Oh! And the life of the animal is not a lizard blissfully sitting on the rock. It's the lizard terrified moving from crevice to crevice as you walk by every experience being a near-death one. And this is what I would offer in response to people who put forth theories of vitalism from Deleuze forward of trying to outlive the master. By all means, give it a try, but don't forget how Deleuze ended his life. Don't forget what he finally decided to do, the master of vitalism. Is there a more decisive act than suicide? Romans since Seneca the Younger thought no. Think about it. It's the one thing that everybody does. It's the one thing that you can't control unless you pass to the act. And yeah. you decide and you seize from the jaws of fortune the timing of your own death. You decide when it's over. I don't know about you, but when I get it's to crazy. that point, I'm gonna be, I want that in the agreement. I want to have a trigger. I want to have a tooth in the back of my mouth that I can chomp down on and just be like, pow, we out. I was just reading about um, Swami Vivek Ananda, I think his name. He's a yoga master and he died in the middle of meditation um, while he has uh, at age 39 and he had predicted that he will never live past 40. And reading about a lot of these Buddhist, um, you know, and, and Hindu masters just realized that a lot of them sort of have death under their control. They just died accidentally in the middle of the middle of meditation. And that is the thought I, I thought it's interesting, the contrast you said um, between this encounter with death and back to final peace compared to the fiction of you being in unity with the one sort of reminds me of maybe that's the problem of the new age spiritualism. The idea is that, you know, the all, why are you doing all the yoga and trying to become part with nature and all the meditation? Um, it seems to sort of automatically carries the feeling of security and comfort and unity when in fact being with the one is like a traumatic experience it's nothing that anyone actually wants so this is Xinhua Li if you don't know her stuff um, she's a professor and and has published some great stuff on this topic and you can see now why she <laughs> is working with the idea of like extreme adventure and adventure tourism because she doesn't buy this whole pleasure principle driven yoga peaceful shit she likes to think about jouissance, not pleasure. Jouissance hurts. It's a push at an outer limit. And it's a powerful experience. And if you want to see it play out at the level of late capitalism, 
where people find really interesting ways to package up in a safe fashion near-death experiences. Her name is Xinghua Li, and you can just search her on Google. <laughs> you know what I think is so great about this is that as I look around this room, and I know, bear in mind, there are, let's see, 12 of us here right now, and there are lots and lots of people who are watching these videos who are in this mix but aren't with us right now, but will be starting tomorrow morning when the link goes out. And let me tell you, <laughs> these people are great. Everybody in this room is a badass in their own way. And so I'm really honored to see this, to see this Don't Google me. in response to this text. And Don't Google me. Thing, Being discovered is like encounter with the, the, uh, the death drive, the, oh, the real. Will. You yeah. will. I'd rather not be discovered by the real. Prepared you for. All I did was just cite your ass. This is just a, <laughs> this is an oral citation. I just cited you. And, and that's what we want. Come on, that's desire. That's not jouissance. You didn't experience anything extreme. You're just maybe a little bit embarrassed because you wanted to know how smart you are. No, okay. I'm just hatching my idea. Yeah, just in the middle. Right. Just in the middle. It's not about. out there yet. That's what this is about. And when it's your turn to do the lecture series on jouissance and extreme Ooh. tourism and late capital, sign me up, queen. I'm ready. All right. All right. Now, Thank you. I want to add some terms to this real quick. I know y'all got some other questions. Just hold tight, because this will be the final flourish before we take a break and then return with some questions and discussion. Xinhua brings up this point about life on the verge of death. What I want to suggest here is that psychoanalysis is fundamentally not a branch of human psychology. Psychoanalysis is not a psychology. What Lacan says is it's an erotology because it deals with desire. But I wanna go one step further than that. Psychoanalysis is not a branch of human psychology. It is the closest thing we have to the science of human being. It is a science of being human. This is the science of the human condition. Arendt, Hannah Arendt provides us with the philosophy of the human condition in her brilliant book called The Human Condition. The history and philosophy of the human condition in the West is in Hannah Arendt's book, The Human Condition. In Lacanian psychoanalysis, we get the science of human being. And I wanna suggest that what makes it a very powerful science of human being is that it does not focus on human being. There is an ontology of psychoanalysis from the Greek ontos, being, on, being. But what you heard me say earlier now is able to come to fruition. The science of psychoanalysis as theory and technique is about the study of non-being. It is not an ontology, but a may-ontology. Let's see how Lacan develops this. I think this is one of the most important elements in tonight's readings. Check out page 128. 128 is one of these magical pages. We were just there talking about the cause of the unconscious. This bit about lost causes continues all the way down to the last paragraph. Check this out. 
at this point, I should define unconscious cause neither as an existent nor as a non-existent, as I believe Henri I has, a non-existent of possibility. That's not what Lacan is up to. Notice now where the rubber hits the road. Unconscious cause is a mayon. The Greek here is M-E-O-N when translated. The first, the un, see it, look right there on page 128, two lines from the bottom. You see that un, that U-N in front? Lacan is not just using Greek here because he wants to sound smart. He wants to hit us with another one, with another U-N, the unconscious, das unbewusste, das unbegriff, the unary trait. Here we have the unon, or in our language, the mayon. M-E-O-N is how we translate, transliterate that Greek. It is the mayon of the prohibition that brings to being an existent in spite of its non-advent. Boom. It's a wacky little sentence, but it's all right there. It is a function of the impossible on which a certainty is based. If you had to pick one sentence from chapters 9 through 12 to really meditate on, this is the one. Now add to it what he says about this mayon on page 134. And Cody, I'm glad you're here because you know what he's doing here. He's responding to Miller's question earlier on about ontology, which tripped your trigger in our first get together. You said, man, what's going on with ontology here? I just heard that. And then he says, he's not gonna do it. Lacan here, halfway through seminar 11 is still tripping on Miller's question about ontology. And on page 134, he brings it up again. In the middle of the page, I spoke of the mayon, of the prohibition, of the says no. Now I haven't consulted the French yet, to see how this is a translation mirrored or otherwise of the passage we were just looking at on page 128. But I wonder, I think it'd be worth checking it out. Is this the mayon of prohibition or is the mayon itself prohibition? That might be a technical scholarly thing to get into. What I want to emphasize here is this. Mayon means non-being. What he's after here is an understanding of the human condition as it is rooted in non-being, in things that are not, in no things, things made of the paternal no, the no of the father. What he's after here is a mayontology of humankind that's recenters the question of what it means to be human, not on trying to figure out what we are, but figuring out all the ways that we're not and all the no's coursing through our lives, 
all of these UNs, all these uns, negations that positively shore up what it means to be a subject. All of the prohibitions to which we are subject, or as Lacan puts it here brilliantly on page 134, the mayon of the says no. I began this lecture by saying, the signifier, the subject, the unconscious, and add desire in there, and you've got this quadrilateral of Lacanian psychoanalysis. Great. The key question, though, is what is this signifier that he keeps referring to? Here it is. It's the says no. It's the no of the father, the first utterance of the name of the father as prohibition, as castration, as that parens minus feet, as negative one that gets the human experience started. If there is a one at the beginning of each human being, baby, it's a negative one. It's a subtraction. Human existence is a subtracted state. This is what he's after. The life and what it means to be human begins only with the thou shalt not. The primordial signifier is the signifier no. Now, I don't care what your first word was. I don't care what mine was either. It doesn't matter. The function of each first word whether it was your first name or mama or dada or whatever, it was all the same. The first word you heard and recognized as a word had the same function. It was no, because it says you can't go back and pretend like this shit hasn't happened. Once the language of your family, neighborhood, community, culture, is introduced, and once you are inducted into it, there's no going back. That's a blessing and a curse. It's the blessing and the curse of the symbolic, that it can contain us. It gives us a sense of identity, placement, just at the level of your first name. Names are destiny. We know this. It's also, however, a constraint. Some of us were placed in names and in subjectivities that we quickly outgrew, maybe even from the start, realized deep in our bones, shit, that ain't me. I'm definitely not that, not feeling that. All of the ways that mayontology defines what it means to be human is what's at stake here. Mayontology add an ME to the word ontology and you have it, is the study of non-being. Psychoanalysis as the study of human being is fundamentally at root, a study of human non-being. This is the non-being of prohibition, of castration, of the minus fee, of the unary trait, of that notch in the antler that tells of the kill the hunter's notch was first to signal death. It was life bringing death, the deer that brought life to the group. 
Now, this doesn't mean that it didn't occur. Non-being is not something that didn't happen to us or that it doesn't have effects on who we are. In the psychoanalytic tradition that Lacan is operationalizing here, it is the cause with enormous effects on what it means to experience life. The non-being of the no of the father is fundamentally about the being of a very certain no thing, of a nothing to be, even if only at a loss. And what I would suggest is that, again, folks who are well-read in the Taoist and Buddhist traditions, you've probably seen this shit before. You may even be rolling your eyes at some of this because what we're fundamentally talking about is a philosophy of nothingness. This is where it comes together for Lacan. Sex and death are bound up with the question of nothingness. The question is not why is there something, but what the fuck do we do with nothing? The symbolic unfortunately tells us all too readily what to do with nothing. Turn away, ignore that. That didn't happen, that didn't happen. What I would wager though is that if you push Lacan on mayontology far enough, you're gonna wind up in an East Asian temple. And I think that's a pretty damn fine place to find yourself. Thanks for listening to Lectures on Lacan. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music. <laughs>